0: Welcome to episode 15 of Ask Poor Kirtley, and I'm not even outside. So, welcome welcome to episode 15. this week i've been mainly working indoors i've been working on some writing projects and some film projects i've been inside after being in scotland for a month and being in canada before that so it's been a chance for me to catch up. I have been out and about a bit. Some of it's been raining. I've been very busy when I have been outside, so I just haven't had the time to do an episode of Ask Paul Kirtley outdoors this week. So I thought I'd invite you into my my office, my study, and we could do a session here. It's very easy for me to do it. I've got the questions on my computer. And without further ado, let's go but just in case you want to know what we're going to be talking about today I can tell you that we're going to be talking about bushcraft in South Africa versus Scotland, bivvy bags um, and some issues there, Um, fire bowls, squeaky bow drills, mix and match NCFE courses, snakes and bugs under tarps and canoe versus kayak. there's one other question at the end there as well which i'll address towards the end okay so first question okay and this is from leon and leon says hi paul recently moved from scotland to northern south africa conditions quite different here uh different flora generally uh harder yep water less accessible Hot and arid conditions, etc. Most books and sources seem more suited to northern climates. Yeah, there's a lot of bushcraft literature around North America, northern temperate, into the boreal zone, absolutely, and Eurasia and Europe and Scandinavia. As such, any general recommendations more suitable to the southern climes, e.g., African bushfeld? Guessing that it would probably be similar in a lot of ways to Australian sources okay excellent um so you're really questioning questioning um what sources of information you can use well um yes the australian stuff such as it is um richard graves bushcraft although that is quite a general book even though he was australian it's quite a general book and a lot of what is in that book applies quite generally, but that that's true of a lot of bushcraft skills. You know, if you're making cordage, if you're looking for tinder, it's the same sort of materials that you're looking for. You're just going to have to look for different species. And um, the other thing I would suggest is have a look at some of the work of Les Hiddens, um, the bush tucker man. Now, clearly, his focus is very much on Australian plants but there may well be some crossover in terms of types of plants or strategies there that could be useful to you as well. Um, And then the other thing I would say is also look at some of the literature that's aimed more at the south of the United States. So one book springs to mind, which I I pulled off the shelf here, Um, Larry Dean Olson's outdoor survival skills and he was based in more arid parts of the united states and i think some of the stuff in there would be very relevant to uh, southern africa and uh, certainly sub-saharan africa generally and and certainly where you are in uh, northern south africa so i hope that helps and then of course i mean the other thing as well is try and get hold of some of the local um, guides the field guides both in terms of the, the fauna but also the flora because if you get some good guides, they often have a few pointers as to some of the uses as well. depends on the author, but I can't think of any off the top of my head. But generally, if you get a good guide they'll often have this was used by natives for whatever or this was used by people um as an indicator of water or whatever it is sometimes there's those little tidbits in there as well just in the general in the general guide so um and there are some really good um field guides for south africa um, and then the last thing i would recommend is maybe having a look at the uh the field guide uh, south africa um the fgsa who also Um, have the uh, the tracking uh, credentials for their for their uh, bush guides you could look into some of their training as well because a lot of that is not just about tracking and tracks and animals it's also about understanding the environment so there's some useful information in that scheme as well so all of those things i think combined will, will really start to orient you to that environment so hopefully that's helpful leon right next question comes from David, uh, David Fiorini. And he says, um, he's asking two questions. Okay, um, the first one is about rucksacks. Aside from the Caramore 45, what other packs do you use and what are the capacities? Also, I'm a bit confused about bivy bags. Uh, do all bivy bags zip to fully enclose the user? Um, however, it doesn't look like yours closes fully. Um, I'm a tent user and trying looking to try a bivy bag however i think i would really prefer one that encloses fully okay we'll talk about that there are pros and cons there um could you help me to understand exactly what these bivvy bags are okay no worries david i will do that so just close that down first question saber 45 that is a rucksack that i often start with it's quite a large pack for a day pack, but I do use it as a day pack in the winter. It's a good day pack in the mountains and I can camp out of it in the summer in the UK. And certainly if I put side pockets on it, PLC side pockets, I can uh, put cooking pots and water bottles and things in one side pocket and wash kit and that type of thing. And in the other side pocket, I can leave it completely free for putting food in. So if I'm going for longer, putting the side pockets on allows me to cook and eat and wash and those things um, that I need to do. Um, I can get all my camping gear inside the main compartment. Um, If you've not seen um, my video on how to pack all of that into that rucksack, and if you've not seen the article on what that actually contains, that's going back quite a few years now on my blog, and it's buried a long way down in the archives. Um, I'll put a link to both of those in the show notes for this, and that's over at paulkirtley.co.uk. If you're listening to this um, on the podcast, or if you're watching this on YouTube or embedded elsewhere, go over to paulkirtley.co.uk, look for the Ask Paul Kirtley shows, and then go down to the relevant episode. This is episode 15, show notes. All the links that I talk about in this show will be on that page there, all in one place. I can't put them in multiple places. I simply don't have the time to to do that, unfortunately. Um, My blog is the central hub of all that I do. Yes, there are quite a few spokes off it with podcasts and and videos. I try and put the information out in the way that suits everybody in the way that uh, people like to consume it. I certainly like to um, listen to podcasts while I'm driving, for example, I rarely have time to listen to podcasts other times. So I appreciate that a lot of people like to listen to this in the car. Um, And actually this is on iTunes now, so check it out on iTunes, um, and it will be on other platforms. If you want it to be on other platforms, let me know. But anyway, back to David's question. So that rucksack is the one that I use a lot of the time. In the winter if I'm if I'm having to take more bulky sleeping bags and more kit then I'll look at something like the Berghaus Vulcan which is a pretty cavernous rucksack. It's a simple rucksack it's not got lots of bells and whistles and zips and pockets and compartments. It's pretty much just a big compartment rucksack which you can also put PLCE side pockets on. Now I'm not specifically tied to military rucksacks um or military type rucksacks and um, it's just that they tend to be fairly rugged they tend to ha- i quite like side pockets unless i'm i'm climbing or using ropes and that type of thing so uh, it just helps you keep things organized um, so that's something i use in the winter and a big pack even if you're not ramming it full a bigger pack in the winter helps because if your hands are cold or colder or you're using gloves it's just harder to get everything compacted down like you can in the summer um, and the other reason for that as well is that when stuff is colder it's harder to pack down it's not as pliable things become stiffer and more rigid and you know everything from sleeping bags through to uh, spare clothing and roll mats and everything just become more awkward so having a slightly bigger pack in cold conditions and I'm talking sort of down near zero and sub zero temperatures, bigger sleeping bags, more clothes, more food, bigger rucksack so Berghaus Vulcan is one that I use there. Um, And then otherwise, I've got a couple of other rucksacks. Um, I quite like the Crux rucksacks. I've got a Crux uh, 47 litre rucksack, which I use as a day pack in the winter for winter mountaineering. I like that pack a lot. Um, And then I've got the 57 litre version of the same rucksack as well, which is, it's a little bit small for my liking, but equally I like the fact it's a little bit small. And um, the reason I say that is for example, um, last year, and I still haven't got this on my blog, I still haven't got a write-up of this on my blog, it's on my to-do list, but last year um, a couple of the guys that, that work with me uh, and I, we went off and did a, a hike, it was a week-long hike in the Scottish Highlands, and we, um, the aim was to hike the Scottish 4000s. So the nine highest mountains in Scotland basically joined them up in a continuous walk across Scotland from east to west, and um, that uh, that was what we did. And I used that rucksack um for that trip and that had that was a summer trip but it had sleeping bags sleeping kit tent spare clothes food stove all of those sorts of things in that 57 litre um bag and there isn't there aren't any side pockets and so when i say it's a bit tight but i like the fact that it's it's quite hard to get everything in it means that i cannot pack stuff just in case It, it it gives me a discipline where i have to really think about what i'm putting in that rucksack so that's another rucksack that i use in the past i used the carry more oh, what was it called um, this is one of my favorite backpacking rucksacks for a long time before back before rucksacks started getting lighter um, it wasn't a jaguar it's a bit bigger than that the condor carrymore condor now carry sf make a similar one um, but they're they're quite heavy now compared to some of the other rucksacks um, so i you know if you want something a bit bigger but lighter look at crux look at pod um, look at go light you know there are other rucksacks out there that are that are light and, and pretty sturdy um, those are the places that i, that I would look um for, for starters in, in terms of my experience there's lots of other good rucksack manufacturers out there but frankly if you buy a good rucksack they last a long time and so unless i'm not reviewing rucksacks on a regular basis um, and so you know i'm not getting sort of 10 rucksacks to try out um uh, you know over the course of a review period i just buy all my own kits all my own rucksacks i've had over the years i've bought nobody's given me anything or paid me to review any of those sorts of things so my experience is relatively limited in terms of different models i've tried stuff some things i've discounted because i you know i've tried other people's i don't like them i don't like alice packs for example and um, that's just personal preference um but mostly, stuff I've used, I've used for a long time and it lasts and therefore I'll recommend it. But that means that, you know, the number of things I've used is relatively small. Um, I'm not somebody who just goes out and buys kit for the sake of it to try the next um, best new thing. If it works for me, I'll use it. If I have a problem, if it doesn't quite suit the specification of a trip I'm doing, and if it's too light, if it's not tough enough or it doesn't have the features that I need to carry the equipment that I need to carry, I'll look for a solution to that. But otherwise, that, that's it. So. Sabre 45 with side pockets, and I've had a couple of those over the years. Um, the Crooks rucksacks 47 and 57 I like a lot, and I've liked some of the old Carrymore ones, um, but they're not they're not made anymore. And the the Berghouse Vulcan for a bigger winter a winter pack. That's my uh, answer. Right, um, bivy bags. You asked about are all bivvy bags zipped? No, they're not. Um, are all bivvy bags completely closed? No, they're not um the bivy bag that i use a lot of the time is just the uh british military bivy bag which is not too heavy because it's a very simple uh, bag it's just a big bag there are no zips and and other things um no other attachments or places you can put poles in them it's just a bag that goes over your sleeping bag um so it's not too heavy it's pretty waterproof if you keep it well um well maintained and keep it reproofed occasionally i just reproof mine once a year with some nick Wax. that works very well so um i'm happy with that it's, it's tough it's robust i'm sleeping in woods a lot of the time that have you know they've, they've got sweet chestnut husks on them you know when i'm running courses we're down in the south of england and there's a lot of sweet chestnut coppers um, i want something that's quite robust um, it's not the lightest in the world but it's also not super heavy if you look at my lightening the load part one video and i'll put a link to that in the show notes as well i talk about a couple of different solutions there and look at how weights vary and where you can shave weight and where you need the weight or whether where the weight is a trade-off uh, for different seasons and different um, different uses and um, some bags, like the lightweight bag that I show in that video, the uh, the Snug Pack um, SF bivvy, it's designed to be very compact, and it's got a zip up the middle. Now, central zip bivvies are good in some senses, in that you can sit up in them, you can zip them down, basically. St- to your waist and sit up that can be quite good and it's certainly good in winter conditions where you want to be getting dressed in your inside your bivy bag it's easier to do that with a central zip bivy than one that comes all the way up Um, but the mod one the the standard british military one has quite a large aperture and so um, you, you know you can you've got some leeway for moving around in it now do you want things that completely close up? Generally, no you don't, because as soon as you put your head in a bivy bag, you're breathing moisture into your sleeping kit. And while you can get away with that in a tent, you can't generally get away with it in a bivy bag, particularly if it's a bit colder, because you're just gonna get a lot of condensation and a lot of moisture in your sleeping kit. That makes it damp, that means it doesn't work as well, that means you get cold, that means it needs to be dried out the next day, and if the conditions are cold, that can be difficult. So, in even in arctic conditions i will be if i'm bivvying outside and i'm talking sort of minus 20s minus 30 celsius and um, my face is outside yes i'll have a balaclava on yes i'll have a hat on yes i'll be using the hood of my sleeping bag but my mouth and my nose are still outside and if i really can't cope with the cold on my face um there's a couple of options there one is to have something that is above your bivvy not not completely encapsulating you so for example in the snow you might put snowshoes or skis and then drape a jacket over the top so the cold air is not pushing down on your face and then the other thing you can do is take a jacket and breathe through the sleeve like an elephant, so you 're breathing through the sleeve yes you 'll get some frost on the armpit or thereabouts on the jacket, but you 're not breathing all of that moisture into your into your sleeping kit, and then you have to get it out, which can be impossible in sub zero temperatures so um, I've tried double hooped bivy bags where you've got two little poles and it's like a mini 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 tent. I used to use those before you could get really good quality um, one man tents. So my one man tent weighs the same as that double hooped Gore-Tex bivy bag that I used to use years ago and it's much more pleasant to be in the tent. I've got space for all my kit in the vestibule, I've got a much larger space to be inside, I can sit up, I can move around, I can organize my myself, I can mend equipment, I can read whereas the, the, the little tunnel bivy bag was like, it was like getting in a little burrow and um, I couldn't really move around and if you're stuck in the rain, particularly in summer conditions, you're either out in the rain or you're lying down in this thing that you can't really do anything in um fine if you need to if you needed to move light and fast back then um, I quite like bivvying in the mountains with just a bivvy bag but again it'd be a central zip bag and I tend to sleep with my face outside and if it's absolutely chucking it down if it's raining and I can't get a tarp up with walking poles or up, you know against a rock in my with my sleeping bag or something to cover my head I will just put my waterproof jacket over my head and just arrange myself so that rain's not coming in yeah you get a bit damp sometimes around the edges but in the summer not the end of the world. Bigger issue in places like Scotland are the midges in the summer. So you might want something closed up in the summer, but then again, I'll just carry a tent now for that. So if I'm in the woods, if I'm using a bivy bag, MOD bivy bag does me most of the time. If I need a super lightweight setup, I'll go to the Snugpak SF bivy, central zip, and if I'm in the winter, I use a Dutch Army bivy bag with a central zip put, put in, because it's bigger, I can get more kit in it, I might get bulkier sleeping bags in it, and it's also very durable. All of that is in that lightening the load video, check that out. Hopefully that helps you, David. If you've got further questions on bivy bags, um, let me know but frankly go and get a class um, a grade one uh, used uh, surplus mod bivy bag for about 40 quid go out and use it see how you get on with it if you don't like it sell it to somebody else on ebay get something else simple as that you're not going to lose out very much and at the end of the day you can kind of theorize about this stuff just go and try it and, and see how you get on with it right next question Fireballs from Jason Edwards. Jason asks Regarding episode 8's information about where is best to have a fire, how do you rate products such as the Grilly Put Fireball? Would you expect the heat to transfer through the steel and still cause problems? Um, if the only purpose is easily discarded ashes, then I don't think it's worth the price tag. Um, if it means less chance of spreading fire through root systems, then I think um, I would think about purchasing one all right good yes yeah, so we were talking about where to have a fire when it's appropriate to have a fire we mentioned fires spreading into root systems particularly in coniferous uh, forests where you've got shallow root systems you've got roots going a long way closer surface you've got loamy soil um, that's prone to be uh ignited and particularly in, in dry conditions that can be a real issue and even in not so dry conditions you dry the ground out you start those smoldering um so yeah that can be an issue and i think something that stops the fire burning down into the ground is going to help with that definitely Um, so some sort of fire tray or fire um fire stand or or what have you is going to help with that Um, but it's still potentially going to scorch what's under it if it's lying directly on the ground just the same as somebody going to a local park and Using one of those disposable bar- barbecues and um, you know, just like a foil tray with some charcoal in, and a grill over the top The heat is such that it's going to scorch. It's going to um, Burn and kill off the vegetation underneath and um, it's not going to set fire to the ground probably um, It would have to be you know, really 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 hot to do that but um, it's still going to damage the, the, the foliage underneath. So that's still a consideration with, with the, a lot of these uh, fire bowls and, and similar, you know, they're going to get hot. They're a piece of metal and you're having a fire in it, it will get hot. Um, but it will stop um, embers spreading, it will stop ashes spreading, and it will still it will stop fires going down into the ground. If you can get it up onto a rock, if you can get something, an air gap between what you're burning and the ground, even better because air is a really really good insulator and you know the 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 rate at which metal is going to conduct heat into the ground is thousands of times more than um, air is going to transmit it to the ground so if you can get a bit of a gap between some metal that's got your fire on top of it and ground that's going to protect the ground a lot Um, and I wish people would do that when they're using disposable barbecues and other devices like that and then they wouldn't be scorching grass and vegetation and and what have you. Um, As for the value of those I don't know I haven't used that particular model I don't know how much they cost I haven't researched it so I can't comment on the value but in principle um, you know that could be uh something that's worth doing in certain circumstances to preserve the ground and to preserve the vegetation and to stop the spread of embers and ashes so yeah might be worth looking into and it also depends some places have got a no um a no fire rule at any time of the year or you have to have a permit um if to have an uncontrolled fire or to have an um unguarded fire or however it's phrased but if you can pop it inside a metal container as such then maybe you can be allowed to have a fire for cooking and boiling your water and all those sorts of things and for warmth when maybe you couldn't otherwise. So that's something that's worth looking into, but it's on a case by case basis, Jason. All right, squeaky bow drills. And this is from Ben Atten. Uh, and Ben asks uh, Hi, Paul, I'm interested in primitive fire making. And I've been experimenting with bow drill fires sometimes it makes horrible squeaking noise yet yeah, we've all been there and I'm not sure why um, not only is it really annoying it seems to vibrate the coal and not even make an ember um, have you got any advice on how to stop the squeaking noise um, is it the wood I'm using or too much pressure or the string cheers Ben all right Ben um Yeah, that it's not abnormal for bow drill sets to squeak um, at some stage. Um, There are various theories about why they do it. Um, My observations are that it's often when they start to get a little bit polished, not completely polished, a little bit polished, or when the drill starts to get really dried out. So, you know, you try and choose um, a drill and hearth material that is as dry as possible, yet there is still a bit of moisture in there anything you're pulling in particularly if you're in the northern sort of temperate zone you're not in really really arid areas um or the boreal zone there is an atmospheric moisture um that permeates everything over time and you only need to see you know take a reading book out with you the next time you go camping it will go wavy often um, and that's just down to the moisture that's in the air um and uh it's the same with your your stuff that you know that you're collecting from uh, the bush, and you'll test it and see if it's dry. It's the driest stuff you can find. It's not green. It's not living. It's not wet. It's dead standing. It's the driest stuff in the forest, but it will still have a little bit of moisture permeating in it. And then when you start to use that drill, you are actually if you if your work, if your drill is working well, if your sets working well, you're actually exposing it to quite a lot of heat where that meeting of the drill in the hearth is. And what tends to happen, I'm sure you've noticed this sometimes with the drill, it, it will start to uh, to shrink. Um, Uh, around the rings and wood always shrinks more around the rings than across the rings or uh, lengthwise along the fibers and that's why you get cracks in big Logs. If you leave a log drying you'll start to see the cracks in the end of it and that's because it's drying more around the rings. The same happens with your bow drill. As you start to um, generate some heat at the bottom it starts to dry out more than it was to start off with and that can cause it to crack. And that in itself, that little crack in there, can start to cause some vibrations and it starts to squeak. That's normal um so don't worry about that too much but i think the the most important thing is how do you get um beyond that how do you make sure it works properly and so i would say generally um the time you'll often get it is you'll burn your bow drill set in and that works well you know you've 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 seated it all in the end of your drills black you've got a nice black circle in the top of your half you go to cut your notch That's all good. Then you start drilling and after a little while it starts to squeak. Now, as I say, there are a couple of reasons why that might be the case. Now, if it's polished, um, you're on a little bit of a vicious circle there, because if it's polishing, you're probably not putting enough pressure on. Maybe your wood's a bit too hard. Um, But if you're not going to break through that sheen that you're generating, it's going to get more polished. So the, the, the immediate thing to do, if you feel like it's starting to polish, is put a little bit more pressure on. Now, If your string's not tight enough and you put more pressure on, your string will start to slip. That will put sheen on your string. If you're you're using paracord, for example, that will start to polish the paracord. That will grip less. So if your string starts to slip, you need to tighten it up. And once you put your drill into the string, you shouldn't be able to move it around. You shouldn't be able to slide it. If you can, the string is too slack. So check that. But provided the string is gripping, the 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 drill well enough you should be able to put a little bit more pressure on and break through that sheen if it's a bit more polished then maybe what you have to do is stop take your knife and just give it a little scrape just to break the polish on the end of the drill go back and that should work a lot better if that doesn't work then you can start to do things like if you can find a tiny little bit of sand or sandstone or something Put a little bit you know just a bit of soil that is dry but sandy drop that in that can work like an abrasive um, and that can break up any sheen and just help the two bind together and um, but fundamentally if you start to lose friction you can get a squeak and so you need to resolve that quite quickly because you get into a vicious circle where it becomes more polished either at the drill or at the string and you need to sort that out um, and there are a few suggestions as to how to do that there if it's just because the end of the drill is cracked you just kind of have to live with that um, in terms of the noise it can be really piercing and unpleasant on your ear and um, the more important point as you've said is that it can vibrate the uh the the dust around and can stop a coal from forming and that's very true. So what you need to do is make sure that your hearthboard is on as solid a footing as possible. Um, now if it's too hard then it you know if you if you were to bow drill on top of a piece of rock it would be quite hard to keep it still. Whereas if you're on a slightly softer surface it will just slightly bed in um, you know if you talk, do it on the earth or, or dirt it's going to bed in it's not going to move around so much that the the two are going to form together very nicely and that will stay still and um, and at the end of the day that the hearth could be moving around if you're not putting enough weight on it and so again putting pressure on the drill that comes from body weight it doesn't come from pushing away with your arm and so you want to keep your hands clamped to your shin and then just put a bit of more weight towards your front leg the one that's Sat on top of the hearth board, and as you do so, that should also help secure it in place. And if it's still moving around, maybe you then need to stop and find a better spot that where the where the hearth isn't moving around. Um, if it's vibrating too much, then you need to do something to solve that. Um, also, if there's a bit of a gap between what you're collecting the uh, the ember on, what you're collecting the dust on, and and the hearth board so that might the bottom of your hearth board might not be that flat and if there's a gap that means the two can be moving relative to each other and again that will uh, disturb the dust that you're creating so better still have the hearth pushing down on what you're collecting whether that's a piece of bark or a piece of wood or a piece of wood shavings whatever you're collecting your your uh, dust on have that really well connected to the hearth and have the hearth really well connected to the ground and then nothing can move around relative to each other so that's the thing to look at um and that should that should really do you those solutions should should help you get to where you need to be uh ben and if it squeaks a little bit after you've sorted all of those things then just work through it i would put a bit more pressure on a bit more force and remember to use full length um, of the of the string um, get really good um really good bow strokes keep it nice and parallel to the ground and you should work through that squeak and as the temperature changes it should stop doing it so hopefully that helps ben go and try those things go and troubleshoot your your set and see if it works let me know how you get on i'm interested to see and if you do have specific problems come back let me know what materials you're using what species of wood diameters maybe send me some photos and we can we can go from there Okay, mix and match NCFE courses. For those not familiar, NCFEs, Northern Counties, it's a board that sets exams. Um, Well, actually it used to set exams. They now kind of ratify a process for an examination. Um, Now the only NCFE exam I've ever done is back at school many, many years ago when the information technology and computer course that I was I was doing, and I'm going back a long way here, um, back when I was sort of 14, um, they had us learn to type on a typewriter first and an electric typewriter before we're allowed on a word processor. And the NCFE certificate that I did was a typing certificate. So the only NCFE certificate that I've got is Uh, for typing and to be honest with you that's extremely useful I write a lot I write a lot of articles for magazines and for my blog and I can type pretty fast so um, that's actually been a very valuable thing for me to learn um, in terms of sharing my bushcraft knowledge so um, not all wasted but what we're talking about here is not typing exams we're talking about um, there are a few providers who provide bushcraft uh training and bushcraft leadership training is aimed at people that want to teach at various different levels um and it goes from it just being a, a short weekend course so for level two for example there's level three which is a bit more involved and then level four typically involves um nearly a year of study sort of minimum um to get that that level four and John Ryder was the guy who really instigated this and um, he was originally working with uh, Plumpton College but he now just offers them himself through the Woodcraft School and I know some people who've been through it and they say very good things about it and I know John and he's a good guy he's got a lot of integrity so that's a good course to get on and you learn some some good stuff from that. Um, in my experience, having hired a few people um, or interviewed a few people, and hired at least one person that has done that course, um, there's still a lot to learn about running bushcraft courses once you've got that foundation in place. And um, you know, typically, the people who and I'm not I'm not dismissing that at all. It's just that you know, it's like any job that you do, you go and do some training, and then you really start learning. You know, whether you're a lawyer or a doctor or any of these things, you know, you you do your kind of baseline training, but then there's a lot of learning that goes on top of that. And, you know, same for me, you know, I apprenticed with, with Mears. And once you once you start uh, assisting, and then you're a senior assistant, and then you're running courses, you're just your learning curve is super steep. So you know, let's just caveat all of these things: is that you know, none of these courses are going to take you from zero to to hero in one fell swoop, but they're a great foundational um, foundational. Plank for people that need that, and um, and it's a great way to learn, and it's a great way to to have to be with a bunch of other people who are all similarly motivated as well on those courses. So. Um, so the question here about these courses um, sort of went off on a bit of a sidetrack there, but, but basically yes, they are worth doing. And that wa- I know that wasn't the question, but just for people that don't know about these 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 um, these schemes, now there are a few other people other than John that offer uh, courses that have been ratified by the NCFE, and that doesn't really tell you much about the quality of the bushcraft or survival skills that are being taught, or even really about the train the trainer stuff that's been taught in terms of teaching how to teach it just shows that certain hoops have been jumped through and and frankly i think there are varying different qualities out there um so should you mix and match it it depends if you're getting on well um within the establishment or with the instructor that you're currently training with and you're happy with that then stick with it um you know when when i've been going um since i started to learn to canoe um, about a decade ago where I really seriously got into it um, rather than just sort of playing around occasionally, Um, my instructor pretty much the whole time has been Ray Goodwin. Now I go to events and symposiums and things where you you go out with other people that have got more experience, but largely I've trained with Ray, I've worked with Ray, um, and it's only when I've done assessments just to avoid a conflict of interest, I've gone to other people. but there is value in you know sticking with somebody that works that works for you if if it works then great um but equally at some point it's worth going and learning with other people because they have a different perspective they have a different way of explaining things um they have a different uh starting point they have a different motivation for um, what they're doing and uh, they have different experiences and that's valuable that that just creates a a, a thicker more dense more complicated mat and web of experience and uh, and advice for you and that can be extremely helpful so if you feel like you need that then by all means um, move around and also don't be afraid to go and learn from People that are teaching courses that aren't ratified with NCFE um, overlays because you're going to learn stuff from that as well. And so I, I would just really look at what you think you need to learn. If you're not happy with where you're learning, then look around. If you are happy, stick with that as the core, and then maybe augment it as and when you feel feel that's necessary. And it's the same with any learning. I think you just have to go with your intuition about what you need and be honest with yourself, and then and then go from there. Um, but is there, if the question is, are people gonna look more uh, fondly and look more uh, favorably on somebody who's jumped around versus somebody who's done training with the same provider? I don't think it makes any difference, um, frankly. It's, it certainly doesn't to me. Okay, Sam, I hope hopefully that helps. Couple more, gonna have to be quite quick on these. Uh, snakes and bugs under tarps, and this is from Dan. And Dan says, hi Paul, sleeping under a tarp when in the woods seems great, but isn't there a risk of snakes or bugs or something? If so, how do you protect yourself? Cheers, Dan. Um, Well, I've talked quite a bit about tarps and bivvies and hammocks and tents in previous episodes. Go and check those out, Dan. Go and check those out, anybody else that's wondering about this. But fundamentally, um, in some parts of the world, yes, bugs and snakes and other things can potentially be an issue you know so if you're sleeping in tropical areas if you're sleeping in areas where there are dangerous snakes if you're sleeping in areas where there are problematic insects then you'd be better off in a hammock that's what hammocks are for largely so um if you want to sleep under a tarp but you don't want to sleep on the ground sleep in a hammock now in the uk am i bothered about sleeping on the ground no in europe am i bothered about sleeping on the ground no um you know when i go to africa I'd rather be in a tent um, when I go to, you know, and it can be quite an open canvas sort of tent, but you know, I don't wanna be out in the open and that's not just about snakes. It's also about other other things that are around in the bush. Um, in more tropical areas, I wanna be in a hammock. Uh, it's, it's that simple. So I'm not dogmatic about this. It's just that I quite like sleeping on a flat, hard piece of ground. It's best for my back. It's simple. You can throw that setup very quickly. I can throw my setup very quickly. I'm happy with it. Um, but then when I go to places where I need to be off the ground, then then I do that. And that's, that's my view, Dan. So hopefully that makes sense. Canoe versus kayak. And this is a question from Anton Erdman. And he asks, uh, well, first of all, first of all, he says, thanks for the great show. You're very welcome, Anton. Thank you for the uh, kind words. Um, he says, I really enjoy it. Could you please share your thoughts about canoe versus kayaks. Seemingly you have great experience with both. Do you prefer one over the other or does it depend on a route you are taking? Thanks in advance, regards Anton. Well, first off, let me be clear. I have a lot more experience in canoes than I do in kayaks. I've got very little experience in kayaks. Um, my Most of my water travel has been in the canoe and by canoe, just for the sake of clarity, I mean what some people will call a Canadian canoe, an open canoe. Um, 15 or 16 or 17 foot long with an open top that you can get quite a lot of equipment in or a couple of people in in there. That to me has has been um, a, a watercraft of choice because of partly because of the places that I'm going. Um, I've done. Uh, trips in Canada, in exactly the place that the canoe was designed for. The canoe was born in that environment, it makes perfect sense in there. There's a lot of water, both in terms of rivers and lakes and tributaries, and getting through that environment is virtually impossible without some sort of watercraft. Um, and so the canoe makes sense there. The the design that we use now is fundamentally the same as the old birch bark canoes and they were designed to both be portable um, out of the water, to work well in the water and to be able to carry a load and so for me most of the time that makes perfect sense in terms of the journeys that I want to make whether they're in Canada, whether they're in um, that same sort of uh, mode of transport on rivers and on lakes in land, that to me makes sense and that's what I've done and that's why I choose to travel that way because they're designed for that. Um, In modern river kayaks are designed largely for um, more extreme white water paddling and that's absolutely fine. That's a great recreational thing to do. But they're not really designed, particularly the shorter playboats. They're not designed for journeying, and they're not designed um, for touring, and they're not designed to have a lot of equipment in there. Now, some people do make trips where they put some equipment in, and that's and that's fine. But I think in terms of comfort. For most people, unless you're paddling some really extreme water, sort of above grade three um, or class three, depending on where you live in the world, um, most of the time you're going to be fine in a a canoe. And only when you get out onto the sea or very large bodies of inland water, so, you know, we're talking the Great Lakes in Canada, for example, or out onto um, open water around the UK, around the coast of the UK, um, then sea kayaks start to come into their own there and certainly you know, it's something that I aspire to do, but haven't haven't done. There are some fantastic journeys to be done in the islands, for example, or off uh, Scotland, and certainly in other parts of the world as well. There are some fantastic sea kayaking journeys to- to do, they're bigger boats, you can put more equipment in them. If you want to know (laughs) what that sort of journey looks like, although it might put you off a little bit, have a look at, uh, or have a listen to the podcast I did with Justine Kergenven, who uh, kayaked the, uh, sea kayaked the Aleutian Islands with uh, Sarah Uten and they, she just recently finished her round the world trip, Sarah so that's been in the news recently. Um, but go back and listen to my uh, podcast with her about that journey, that's very interesting. That's a sea kayak journey. And so to me, the two craft that really appeal are the canoe and the sea kayak. Um, I'm not so much of a white water junkie that I want to be paddling hard on rivers in in river kayaks but that's just me um, I, I take my hats off to the guys who do and if you want to watch the most extreme version of that um, have a look at the great Inga project which a friend of mine Malcolm recommended and it's about some guys paddling these humongous rapids on the Congo River um, incredible to watch um, I watched it on Netflix I think but you can find it on YouTube and various other places as well and I'll put a link to that in the show notes if i remember to as well so hopefully that answers your question Anton. and just if you can find a club um go and try both if you can um or maybe a store that sells both and ask you know if they've got water nearby you can try um or, or friends that have got one or the other go and try them see what you like doing uh, and go from there and, and they're not mutually exclusive i know plenty of people who they, they river kayak, they sea kayak, and they open boat as well. And um, they just you choose the craft that suits them for the particular activity. But most of the time for touring and traveling inland, canoe, offshore on the sea, large bodies of inland water like, you know, uh, Lake Superior or something, sea kayaks work very well, and um, river kayaks if you really want to go for it with the, uh, with the white water. Dun, 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 dun. So, last question is from Adrian, Adrian Spring. And I think it's Adrian's aspiration to try and get a question on every single episode of Ask Paul Kirtley. Um, I do appreciate you asking the questions, Adrian, I'm not taking the mickey, Um, and I I actually like this question as well, uh, particularly because he's asking what he can give back, he appreciates the fact, and he says, hi Paul, had a moment of clarity further to ask Paul Kirtley, episode 10, Uh, you do so much for us, there must be something that we can do for you to help you in some way, please feel free to ask, all the best, Adrian. Well, that's very kind of you, Adrian. i don't make these shows to to expect in the expectation i get something back although really i just want people to watch them and hopefully they benefit them and that for me is the benefit i do like people to let me know um but that's not expected it's just nice when they do that they find it useful and as i asked a few episodes ago for the lurkers to say hello and it was fantastic all these people came out the woodwork and said hello on youtube comments and on blog comments and that was that was great so thank you for that Um, what you can do for me yeah is if you like a particular show the thing i would ask is that other people are probably going to like it too other people like you will appreciate the particular q a session that you've just liked um, you've just enjoyed and got value from. So if you could just share it with a Facebook group or an online community that you're part of so that they get the benefit too, um, you know, I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna try and hide. That benefits me as well, it grows my audience, but also it benefits those people and we become a bigger and smarter and more well-informed community as a result of that. And we increase the, the debate. And it's the same, if you if you consume this via um, Audio, as I said before, it's now on iTunes. If you don't already subscribe on iTunes, if you're an iTunes user, as a lot of people are, um, then you can go over to iTunes and subscribe. That will help me out a lot. Um, You can leave a rating or a ranking there on iTunes or both, and that will help me a lot as well because it just makes it more visible. Um, The engine within iTunes will make it visible to more people who like related um, so outdoor and 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 that type of podcast, um, it will put it put it in front of them more often, and that will mean that I'll potentially grow the audience there on iTunes as well, which is which is helpful for the same reasons I've just talked about. So if you can share, if you can like, if you can leave a little rating on iTunes. And also if you don't use iTunes, anybody that uses an iOS device, you know, an Apple device, um, there's an app, there's a there's a podcast app now um, where you can get podcasts. So if you don't like iTunes but you have the podcast app, you can subscribe that way. And there's a feed on my blog as well now. So you, if you've got some sort of app that pulls RSS feeds in directly, the feed is there on my blog and you can pull it in that way. And if you want to see it on other platforms, let me know. So yeah, if, I, if, if you can do anything to help Adrian and other people that want to help is just share the stuff that you enjoy that i put out with the wider community so that they get the benefit too i grow my audience i get more questions as well you know the bigger the audience the more questions i get um and hopefully i get some that haven't been asked before and again that can help inform you that will be beneficial to you if i'm answering questions that maybe you had not thought of or coming at things from a different perspective so that that everybody wins that way so that's uh, that's my main uh, that's my main thing really Adrian so thanks for asking the question thanks for watching this episode of Ask Paul Curtly from my office and um, hopefully you haven't been too distracted by the bookcase behind me to, t- to try and see what all the books are um, probably can't see them on the screen it's too small um, but, uh, yeah, I will hope to be back outside again on the next episode of, um, Aspore And I also, it did amuse me when I, when I first started re- press the recording button, I thought, well, I'm in a, you know, effectively in a bedroom and, uh, you know, it's probably quite apt for a mid teenager. We're at 15 now, 15 episodes in, uh, 15, uh, teenager, Probably doesn't go outside very much. Um, that's what everybody, that's what adults say anyway. You know, teenagers stay inside all the time. Um, but uh, yeah, I thought that was quite amusing. Anyway, I'll leave you with that. I'll stop waffling and I'll see you on the next episode of Aspore Curly. Cheers.